Anyway, uh, I just want to say just a welcome again to those who maybe uh, just popped in online or just joining us. We're thrilled to have you with us. Um, Today we are going to, and I mentioned this earlier, uh, today is the final message in our series that we've been calling God and Money because I was super creative with that title. Uh, So this is God and Money, week four, and it is the final week of this series. Now, I've said that this has been a challenging series for me uh, because typically of the way I usually preach through books of the Bible, but for this series, you know, we wanted to look at a specific topic, but it's been really good, uh, for me at least. Uh, it's been really good. And if you've missed any of the sermons, I would just encourage you to go listen to the audio. Go to our website. You can catch the audio and catch up or subscribe to our podcast feed and just catch up on those. Again, I want to say I'm indebted to the work of the writers of the course seminar material from Capitol Hill uh, Baptist Church for their outline. Their research on this topic is extremely helpful to me. Now, if you'll think back, I kind of want to go back, since this is the final week, kind of want to go back and kind of summarize the series uh, for just a minute. So if you think back to the first week of the series, we learned that you don't own what you own, okay? All of the things that you own uh, belong to God. And God, as a good and generous master, has entrusted each of us with the management of whatever amount we've been blessed with. And we're responsible as stewards, as managers of that money, to use that amount for the purposes of the master, of our master, And then in the second week, we looked at what our giving should look like in relation to our local church. And we talked specifically about some needs in our church as well. Then last week, we looked at how our faithfulness actually proclaims the goodness and the worth of God. We went back again to the parable of talents and we discovered that unfaithfulness tells a lie about God. And we eventually are going to dip one more time back into that parable later in this message this morning uh, and see what all we can continue to, to squeeze and drain out of it. Because um, it really, you know, scripture is a bottomless well. Um, have you ever thought, though, maybe had a passing, somebody talked about stewardship or giving or something like that, and you had this passing thought go through your head of like, I don't really want to try to be a better steward or that, well, I'd like to be a better steward, um, but I've tried and it just never works out for me. Well, today, as we come to this final message, uh, is it's about those things. It's about the enemy of stewardship. And that enemy is idolatry that lives deep down in our hearts. I want to put something before you to consider this morning When we're looking at our stewardship, we often think that we need to change our behavior towards giving. We we often think we need to change our behavior uh, in stewardship. But I want to suggest to you that it's not a behavior modification that we need. We don't need to have our behavior modified. We need to modify who our God is. We need to modify who the God in our life is. See, somewhere deep in our hearts, often we are serving other gods rather than the one true God. And that right there is the root of our difficulties in stewardship. So this is not like going to be an easy message (laughs) to listen to probably. Because what I'm going to ask is that God would help us dive deep into what's really going on in our hearts. Now, hopefully that's what goes on every week. um, But we're going to hit it head on this morning 
And again, I know this is a little bit different, but would you pray with me? And then we're going to jump into the book of Genesis. We're actually going to hop around a little bit. So let's pray and ask God to help us with this thing. God, as we come before you, we acknowledge our, I acknowledge my insufficiency, my inadequacy. Um, I'm not enough. And so I need you, Jesus. Um, I need you to speak to your people through your word. Holy Spirit, I need you to move on our hearts and change them and mold them more into the image of Christ. God, without your, your power, uh, without your um, sovereign rule, God, I'm, I'm just, I'm nothing. And, and I just pray that you would, um, you would speak to your people. Use your word to mold us, shape us, to change us. Don't let me make this about me. It's about you and it's for you, Jesus. You increase and and make me decrease here, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a big promise, okay? So we're gonna look, because as we we dive into this idea of idols of our heart um, that that are an enemy of stewardship, I wanna look at Abraham for a minute. And that's who we're talking about when we get into Genesis. Genesis, Genesis. I don't. I can't talk. That bodes well. Uh, Genesis chapter twelve, where God makes this huge promise. This promise, actually, that He makes in Genesis chapter twelve, echoes and it reverberates throughout every page, every chapter of Scripture. God appears to a guy named Abram, okay, whose name He'd eventually change to Abraham. So God appears to Abraham. And Abram, and he promises to make Abraham into a great nation. If we look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, it says this, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes this promise. Then later on, God takes Abraham. In another passage, God takes Abraham outside at night, right? It's dark and and they're out there at night. And Genesis 15, 5 through 6 says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So we've got Abraham here, and he's getting this massive promise from the Lord, right? So this is, and this is being built up. Now at this point in the story, a lot of time passes, okay? A lot of time passes, years pass. Other stuff happens in Abraham's life. And when he's 100 years old, I'm obviously doing a very big summary of a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that happens in those several chapters. Um, But when Abraham is 100, he becomes a father through a miracle of God. He and his wife, Sarah, are filled with joy because they have a son. And they name this son Isaac. And this boy was the object of their parental affection, right? He was the object of their love, the apple of their eye, but also the object of a divine promise and miraculous intervention. This is God stepping in uh, with an old man and an old lady having a baby that he had promised to them. So it's not just God being glorified through keeping his promises, but it's also miraculous. Now, to them, this child, Isaac, was the most precious gift, was he not? 
in a world, uh, at least it must have seemed that way to them, that this is the most precious gift in the world we could have been given because all this time we didn't have this boy and now at our old age, God has miraculously come through on his promise. But then we come to Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, kind of a wild thing happens. And some of you who, like if you grew up in Sunday school, you've heard this story, you probably had the flannel graph thing, right? And so you know, you know uh, what happens here. But I'm going to tell you, because some people may not know. In Genesis chapter 22, I want to read verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God just told Abraham to go sacrifice his only son. So Abraham obeys. Even like another wild thing, right? Abraham obeys, and he takes Isaac to sacrifice him. You guys, you got to go back and read the whole story because it's just crazy. But, but just as he's about to kill his son, right? He's about to kill his son. God steps in. He stops Abraham. And instead, he provides a substitute sacrifice, a ram in the thicket. Now, that's actually a, like, that is a preview of the gospel, Right? That's a preview of the gospel, but, and, and, and I just, it sticks out to me every time. Um, but God provides this substitute sacrifice, this ram in the thicket. But then in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 22 in Genesis, God retells that promise. So he, he made the promise, he affirms the promise, then he gives the command that seemingly is weird based on the promise he had made, but Abraham obeys It goes to do it. God stops him, provides the substitute sacrifice. And then God retells the promise in Genesis 22, 15 through 19. It says this. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, you may have heard that preached. You may have heard it taught. Um, and so the question that I think we have to ponder, and I'm not asking, please don't yell out answers, but the question that, that, uh, that we have to ponder, that we have to think about is why does God call Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac? Like, why does he do that? Why would God promise this boy to this couple, wait until they are fully advanced in years past the age of child rearing? And then give them a child, and then tell him, go sacrifice him. Well, the Bible says it's a test, right? That this was a test, that God tested Abraham. Now, here's the thing, though. This is not a test in the sense that you test an unknown substance, like not knowing what you've got, and so you're testing to see what you've got. 
God knows everything. He sees our hearts. He knew Abraham's heart, and he knew how Abraham would respond. So why? Well, Tim Keller uh, writes this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. And I think I've got it on the screen as well. But it says, God's extremely rough treatment of Abraham. By the way, I like that. Recognizing that that's extremely rough treatment. God's extremely rough treatment of Abraham was actually merciful. Isaac was a wonderful gift to Abraham. But he was not safe to have and hold until Abraham was willing to put God first. As long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience to God, he could not see that his love was becoming idolatrous. So the test wasn't for God to see, it was for Abraham to see. Because God knows this. The enemies of stewardship are various forms of idolatry. The enemy of stewardship is idolatry. God was protecting Abraham of idolatry when he asked him to, when he commanded him to go sacrifice Isaac. He was actually protecting Abraham from idolatry. Isaac, just like everything you have, was a gift from God. But he was not safe as Keller puts it, to have and to hold, until Abraham's heart was willing to put God even before his own son. God must be first in our hearts, even before our families. When we get to loving the gifts more than the giver of the gifts, we destroy those gifts and we defame the glory of God. Today, what I'm going to attempt to show you in the remainder of the sermon is why God hates idolatry. Then help you to identify when gifts are becoming idols in our lives. And then look at and help us have some skills with how to uproot that idolatry in our lives. Okay? It's a lot, so we better get going. But first, I want to look, as we begin, at how these gifts become idols in our heart. So how do the good gifts that God gives us become idols in our heart? Look, when most of us think about idolatry, we probably think about a primitive culture worshiping a physical idol or a statue. I think of movies where I've seen this. Uh, There's the obligatory one of the Ten Commandments, which gets shown around Easter time, where Moses comes down the mountain and the people are dancing around in front of the golden calf, right? So there's that one. I also think about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. When he returns the, the rocks, the rock idols, the sacred stones to the people over there in India. And they're all excited because they've got their stones. Or in uh, Ace Ventura, when he, mentions, uh, when he mentions that one word and all the people fall down on the ground. So we think about these primitive cultures worshiping a physical idol or a statue. But that's not all that the Bible has in mind when it talks about idolatry. In the book of Ezekiel, we find a startling statement about the elders in Old Testament Israel. And it's in Ezekiel 14, verse 3. It says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set my stumbling block of set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? <clears throat> these elders of Israel in the Old Testament who should have known better had taken their idols into their hearts. So we need to understand what heart means here. The heart 
is not just the red thing that pumps blood when we talk about the heart in the Bible, okay? Hope, hope your heart's not pumping that fast right now, but anyway. The heart is what the Bible images as what deep down you love most and desire most. And that place is the battlefield of idolatry. It's a battleground. Tim Keller, once again, is, is, is helpful here. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give what only God can give. I, like, I mean, Tim Keller is a very smart man, but I really like that, that it's anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And we're going we're gonna to dive into that. But what this means is that every gift of God in your life is a candidate for idolatry. Everything you have is in danger of becoming something you worship. I've heard it said before. I didn't make this up. I heard a pastor say once, when you let a good thing become a God thing, you're an idol worshiper. And so everything you have is a candidate for becoming an idol in your life. So your job, your money, your kids, your dog, your car, your position at church, everything you have that are gifts from God are candidates for becoming idols in your heart. I've quoted Tim Keller a couple of times, but in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he talks about uh, three ways that the Bible talks about idolatry. And I, I want to sort of use that as a template to look at three images that the Bible gives for idolatry. Or if you're poetic, you could say metaphor, okay? So three metaphors uh, that the Bible uses um, for idolatry. So what are these three ways? Well, in Scripture, we see, uh, we see people give in to idolatry in three ways. We love idols, we trust idols, and we obey idols, and these three are useful in seeing how the good gifts that we have become idols through these, other, these three images. They correspond with these three images of idolatry in ways the Bible talks about it. Number one is the marriage image or the marriage metaphor, if you will. Sometimes the Bible talks about idolatry when we love something more than God and it becomes spiritual adultery. We love our idols because they promise to give us significance, value, worth, or beauty. And we can see these idols if we ask ourselves this question, what do I want most in life? A lot of times we find that we've made an idol of our abilities in this way. We, we let our abilities define our worth or our significance. And we love them and make them our false lover. So that's what I mean about a marriage picture or a marital metaphor, right? Is that we love our idols, the second image that, that the Bible uses when it talks about idolatry is, is it a religious image. A religious image. Keller calls it the religious metaphor. But what he means is that it uses the language of salvation. Let, let me show you. In Isaiah chapter 45 verse 20, it says this. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. If you ask yourself this question, what alleviates my fear? You'll expose these idols in your life because these idols promise salvation. They promise to 
save you from whatever it is you're afraid of. They promise control. They promise security. They're a false savior. They're a false savior. We give our allegiance to them. We serve them. The third is a political image. The Bible uses a political imagery. The final imagery that Keller mentions is is this this political metaphor, right? It's a battle for what I said. It's a battle for allegiance or a false master. As one, excuse me, this one quite often is actually a symptom of the first two. Sometimes you'll find that an idol fits more than one of these categories, but we'll see it in Romans 1.25. And it says this, Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. When we believe that an idol is the way to get what is promised by the false lover or the false savior, then that idol becomes a controlling master. The people talked about in Romans 1 were serving their idols. They were worshiping the created, not the creator. How can these get out of whack? How can these get out of whack if you start off with a good thing and then in your life, in your heart, you make it into a God thing? Well, imagine a guy who wants to steward his time really well. So he lives by his schedule. But then he starts to take it to the extreme, like extreme And he starts to do the most productive thing with his time, no matter what the cost is to those around him. So he becomes controlled by and mastered by his schedule rather than the other way around. A whole lot of times, this is going to result in uncontrollable anger, anxiety, despondency, or guilt. And there are times when we love our idols, we trust our idols, and sometimes we obey them. Sometimes we do all three. But these are not just the enemies of good stewardship. This is like key here, right? These idols, they're not just the enemies of good stewardship. These idols are the enemies of God. Because they've taken root in our hearts. Idols are enemies of God. And in that way, idols are worse than we may think. If you're taking notes, that's, that's the main point number two. Idols are worse than we may think because they're enemies of God. You know, I alluded to this last week, but so many times we think of bad stewardship and we think of, oh, well, bad stewardship is, that's just like living below the optimal level for a Christian. Or like it's just being a not so great Christian or a bad Christian. Or maybe like we just aren't living up to what we could be. And when we look at it that way, it makes it seem like it's no big deal. But when we think about idols, when we think about idols, we think about loving something more than God, which we know is bad, and yet we also know is pretty commonplace. But what I want to propose this morning is that we actually need to be putting these two concepts together. And when we do, it's pretty powerful. Let me explain. Do you remember the parable of talents? We've marinated in that for a few weeks now in chapter 25. We've talked about it at length, but let me just give you a recap in case somebody missed it. The master's going away, and so he gives three servants three different amounts of money, and he promises to return and reward them. Now, 
Two of these servants are faithful. They go out, they bet everything on the master's promise. They use the time he's away, and they use his wealth to work for him. The third servant wants to play it safe, so he buries the money and presumably uses the time to serve himself. When the master returns, he comes back. He calls the third servant, the guy that just gave him back what he'd given him, he calls that guy wicked. And he's called wicked because his actions showed a lack of faith in the master. We talked about this at length last week. His actions actually told lies about the master. They proclaimed that the master was not trustworthy or generous. And that was a lie. His actions didn't matter, though, because... Sorry, his actions did matter. His actions didn't matter because there was a lot at stake, though. They mattered because the master's glory was at stake. It wasn't because there was a large sum of money at stake. It was because the master's glory was at stake. And we can sum this third servant up in idolatry. He treated his own time and his wealth and his safety as more worthy of stewarding than his master. And that idolatry spewed out lies about the master. See, we need to view stewardship through a lens of faith, not a lens of results. Too often we we look at our stewardship through the lens of the results of it instead of by faith. This parable tells us to see it through a lens of faith. Does your giving reveal your faith in God's promises? Does it show off the reputation of God? Or do you just obey looking at the results of that? I'll give you an example that I actually got this illustration in that stewardship material I mentioned earlier. Let's say that Susie is totally enslaved to a love of money. But because she considers herself a Christian, she gives 10% to her church in order to feel like she's checked that box. But it takes zero faith to do that. Now, through the lens of results, you'd say something like, Susie, that's great. You get 10%. That's great. But you can do better. That's the lens of results. God's really blessed you. You can totally give 20% if you want. In other words, it's, we're saying, hey, that's good stewardship, but it's suboptimal. That's the lens of results. But through the lens of faith, you'd say something entirely different. You'd say something like, Susie, because it doesn't come from faith, your giving actually lies about the goodness of God. You throw down a measly 10% just to satisfy the demands of this God that you're trying to appease, and then you go off and live a life for yourself. So the question for Susie is, who's the real God of your life? We find in the book of Romans that for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So what's the implication in this? The implication is that bad stewardship is idolatry. That handling our money in a a bad way as it relates to God, is, is idolatry. And in that, though, there's a warning and an encouragement. I told you this was going to be a difficult one, right? Because in that, the, ba- the bad stewardship is idolatry. There's, there's a warning, but there's also an encouragement. So here's the warning. Here's the warning. Don't let stewardship become a safe haven for legalism in your life. See, this happens when, you know, like Susie, you give just enough to God or you use your skills just enough for God that you feel like you're being righteous, but you're actually deluding yourself. It's not any more honoring to God when you do that 
than when Solomon sacrificed to the Lord while he was also sacrificing to Molech, the false god on the side. Oftentimes in our life, we're doing the same thing. God cares about your stewardship in that it shows your faith. With this warning, though, there's also an encouragement. Here's the encouragement. Jesus said that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, it's enough. So the size of your faith doesn't matter, but the size of your God does. If you want, if you want, you can get all twisted up in whether your stewardship is good enough or if you can do better, which are okay questions to ask, but it's easy for us to get all twisted up in knots about it. Those questions are fine, but those are not ultimate. In the parable, the question, listen, in that parable, the parable of, uh, of the talents, the question was not how strong is your faith. The question was, do you have faith? Does the way you steward your time, your talent, and your treasure give evidence that your <clears throat> give evidence your faith that God is better than his gifts? Does it give evidence of your faith that God is actually better than the gifts he gives? So far we've learned about this enemy of stewardship, idolatry. Idolatry is evil, though, because it proclaims that something is better than God. I want, you to, I want that to solidify itself in your heart, that idolatry is evil because it proclaims that there's something better than God, something I'd rather serve, something I'd rather love, something I'd rather trust, someone I'd rather serve. That's what idolatry proclaims. So it follows that bad stewardship is not simply suboptimal, but is evil. So this is such a serious issue, the next question would be, oh my goodness, pastor, how can I identify that in my life? So glad that you asked. I happen to have prepared something. Main point number three this morning is how can I find idolatry in my heart? Of course, many times idolatry is invisible. You don't physically see it for what it is. For example, in Exodus chapter 32, I mentioned the Israelites worshiping the golden calf, which that whole story is just wild. Yeah, Moses comes down and asks Aaron what happened, and he's like, I don't know, I threw the gold in the fire, and out came this calf. You know, it's just like, <clears throat> it's like asking one of your kids why they didn't clean their room when you told them to. Um, I don't know. Um, so in Exodus 32, for example, uh, they're worshiping the golden calf, but they may not have realized that what they were doing was idolatry. Well, pastor, what do you mean they were worshiping a golden calf? Eh, they might have just thought that they were worshiping the Lord in a new and innovative way with this physical representation. Look, we all have mixed motives. If you really start examining your emotions and your motives to figure out if you're doing something because you've made it an idol or because you're a faithful steward, again, you can get yourself all twisted up and not all worried about that. But how do you know if you've taken one of these good gifts of God and made it into a false God? Friends, this is a lifelong project. Okay, I, I, I'm not going to be able to give you, you know, three quick, easy steps to doing this, Okay. But what I can give you are some basic tools to use throughout this lifelong project of making sure that you're not serving or worshiping or trusting idols in your heart. And those basic tools are the normal means of grace. 
And if you want to write them down, I've got a list up there for you. Number one is scripture. First one is scripture. Uh, I've said this time after time, the number one indicator of someone's spiritual growth, of spiritual uh, discipling and, and, and discipleship and growth and, and is engagement with the word of God. And so scripture has to be the base of that for fighting idols in our heart. Because when scripture, we take scripture in, God works through his word and shows us our sin. Shows us where we've put something above him. Second is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. When, when someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, when they trust the gospel, repent of their sins, and trust that Jesus died in their place for their sins, that he rose from the grave three days later and surrenders to him as Lord and Savior of their life. When they come to know Jesus, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside that person. And he convicts us of our sin and he helps us grow and he helps us understand what we read in the word of God. So we have scripture and the Holy Spirit. And as we read the scripture, the Holy Spirit will point out where, and that's honestly probably why a lot of people don't like to read the Bible is in Hebrews chapter four, um, I think it's verse 12. It talks about scripture and it talks about scripture being sharper than a two-edged sword, right? Dividing um, joint and, anyway, I don't want to give an exact quote, but in the New Living Translation, uh, which I used to use a lot back in the day, especially when I was teaching youth, um, it actually says in the first edition of it, I think they changed it in later translation. I mean, it still says the same thing, it just says it differently. But it says, um, it exposes us for who we really are or for what we really are. And I always really liked that. That always stuck with me. But the way it does that is we read scripture and the Holy Spirit points out, this is who God is and this is who you are. Number three is the local church. There is no way around it that if you are a Christ follower, then you are to be actively involved in the local church. You can't do the one another things that are commanded of us as followers of Christ in scripture without the local church. Okay, there's, there's just, there's, there's no way around that. But the local church is also helpful because there are things we do in the local church in service to others, in fellowship with others, and keeping unity and all those things that will, that God will use with the Holy Spirit and Scripture to point out where we've got an idol in our heart. And you'll also use other people to help us see those things in our lives, to hold one another accountable. Number four, circumstances that God uses to reveal your idolatry. There are times in our lives where God will put something into our lives, a circumstance, and that will reveal something in our heart that sometimes we don't like. And instead of saying, oh, this is just a thing that's happening to me, we need to look at for what God might be trying to teach me. What God might be trying to get me to see about what is in my heart. And number five is, is behavior, the fruit of the spirit. We recognize idolatry in the fruit of our lives. So we can look at the fruit that comes out the back end of our lives and figure out what's going on in the top end. <laughs> so if there's bad fruit, fruit that causes us to, be, to, to look back and we can say, oh, well that happened. Well, oh, well I'm serving whatever it is that's not God. Fruit, my fruit in my life is this because 
You know, why did I act that way towards that guy at work? Well, it's because I'm, oh, I'm idolizing my work over my relationship with God, or I wouldn't have treated him in that way because I was concerned about what that was going to be for my position at work. Just an example. I want to give you some questions that I want you right now to consider in your own heart. You may want to jot these down for future reflection as well. But these are just some like diagnostic questions to help us see where there might be idolatry in our hearts. Number one, can I imagine being content if things turn out differently than I hope? Can I imagine being content if things, whatever it is, turns out differently than I'm hoping for? Can I imagine a world where I'm content? Number two, is my fear out of proportion to the situation? Is, is your fear, is my fear out of proportion to the current situation? Number three, am I a faithful steward today? Am I a faithful steward today? It might not be tomorrow. It might not have been yesterday. But the question is, am I a faithful steward today? Number four, do I feel I'm better than others because of my stewardship? Do I feel I'm better than others because of my stewardship? And that can be of your time, talent, treasure, your skills, your family, whatever. Number five, do I feel God's cheated me out of what was rightfully mine? Some of y'all have had some big losses in life and were tempted to feel this way. Do I feel God has cheated me out of what was rightfully mine? Number six, what are my most unyielding emotions? Those things that just don't stop. They don't stop for anybody. They happen no matter what's going on. What are your most unyielding emotions? And the last one, number seven, where am I not being a good steward? Now, that question is just going to assume there's some part of your life where you're not being a good steward, okay? Maybe you don't have one. Maybe you just had, who knows, maybe you already went through something with God. But where am I not being a good steward? As I said, look, there's no easy two-step program for identifying these idols. It is a lifelong fight, but it's a fight that God's going to win. We have that guarantee as believers if we have trusted in Christ. If you've trusted in Christ for salvation and his completed work on the cross, dying as a substitute for you and absorbing the wrath of God due you because of your sin and that he rose from the grave, then we know that God will complete the work that he started in us. And so, is it a lifelong fight? Yes, but it's a fight that God will win. Number four, what are some ways of fighting this idolatry? I wanted to, to as we kind of race towards the end of the sermon, I wanted to give you some, some steps, some things you could do to fight this idolatry in your life, okay? So how do we do battle? How do we do battle? Well, I want to give you two approaches. First, I want to give you a reactive approach, and then I want to give you a proactive approach. Now, the reactive approach means uh, when we do uncover idolatry in our lives, how do we react to that idolatry that we uncover in our lives? And then the proactive approach 
is going to have to do with what we can do on the front end to keep our hearts from falling to idols. So we're going to begin with the reactive. So when we uncover sin in our life, we're going to start reactively with repentance. Repent. Any, any sin that you uncover in your life, any sin, any idolatry, which is sin, that gets uncovered in your life, in your heart, repent of it. In how do we repent of it? Well, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, which I read is our call to worship this morning. I want to go back there. James chapter 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, oh, excuse me, on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And he gives more, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and weep. Or excuse me, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. First of all, we need to repent, but we, we need to recognize our sin for what it is. We need to recognize. How do you recognize that? Well, first, in verse uh, 2, the first half of verse 2 there, in that passage from James, based on, based on verse 2, we see that idolatry begins with desire. It's a, it's a journey from desire to disappointment. This desire is often for a good thing. It might be something like, for example, what I'm kind of going to use example, it might be a good thing like not being in debt anymore. But desire, though, changes as we move along in this passage. And Paul Tripp talks about how desire becomes a demand, which we express as a need. And then that need that we have is expressed, it's not met. Then it lines us up for disappointment. So we take this journey, we recognize from desire, from the want to disappointment. Number two, and this is the kind of the second, the back half of the verse, verse two. Up to this point, Everything so far has been going on in your head, right? But now that desire works itself out into action. So it went from a desire to a disappointment. Now it's going to disobedience. So it's worked itself out into action. In James 4, it's acted out in quarreling and fighting and even murder. The desire says that if I can't have what I want, then I'm going to do whatever it takes to get what I want, regardless of what God has told me in his word. So to, excuse me, to continue our earlier illustration about getting out of debt. So then you take a job working on Sunday mornings to earn some more money, despite the fact that this keeps you from obeying the commands of Scripture to not neglect the gathering together of the saints. So you're trying to get what you want, so now you're breaking the, the clear commands of God in Scripture in order to chase after this desire that moved to a disappointment. It's moved on into disobedience. And then third, it moves out into straight adultery. Verse four. Here's where we get to the low point of the passage. 
James takes what we thought was a horizontal problem, right? I'm just dealing with my, my desire to get out of debt in this illustration or whatever. And he lets us know that it's actually a vertical problem. No matter what the result of the disobedience is, James still sees the root of your issue as idolatry. He refers to me in this passage as a spiritual adulterer, which calls back to that marital picture of idolatry I talked about earlier. He calls me this because at this point in the illustration, I'm demonstrating that I want something more than God. And in doing so, I've made myself God's enemy. Now that truly is a low point. But thank God for verse 6. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. You and I are powerless to fix our idolatry, but God still acts. He's still our Savior. So your response to God now is not yet action, but it's a posture. A posture of humility. So let's look at verse 7 and see how we get to this place of humility. In verse 7 it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we've recognized it, now we've got to act on it. And we act by submitting. And we see that right there in verse 7. Decide you're going to submit to him no matter the cost. I've heard about this often as, as giving God a blank check, taking your check of your life, signing your name, and not filling in the amount, handing it to God and letting him fill in the amount. Not monetarily, I'm talking, well, it could be that, but I'm talking about just with your life. We have to come to God and decide that he's God, so we're going to submit whatever it is he asks us to do. Whatever it is. No matter what the cost is. So you make the decision to repent, and as you draw near to God in humility, he promises that as we draw near to him in humility, he will draw near to you, no matter how much of an idolater you are. This is an amazing promise. He always will draw near to you. As you draw near to God, he'll make it more and more clear how you have made that thing, whatever that thing is, into an idol in your heart. And when you commit to walk in a path of obedience, you'll see as you walk with him more and more ways that you can obey in opposition to that idol. So we submit, we decide to submit to him. And then verse eight, we confess. We confess. James moves on to confession. You're not going to get rid of your idolatry by just thinking about it differently. You've understood it as sin. So explore your heart so that you can understand the sin that is there and confess it. You guys have heard of the philosopher Blaise Pascal, maybe, in a, long ago in a high school class of some kind. Pascal said this, Knowing God without knowing your own wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing, your own, knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. Luke 7.47 says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So we go on from this confession to the result and the result we see there in that story that verse about the woman we see exaltation we can exalt in Christ's forgiveness and love 
And so we can love much because we've been loved much. We can forgive much because we've been forgiven. And God promises to exalt us. So that's the reactive approach. That's how we react to this idolatry in our lives. But how do we proactively fight it? How do we get on the front end and fight it? First of all, there's two ways, faith and enjoyment. Faith and enjoyment. Two ways to fight this practically. Number one, faith. Trusting in, trust in God in times of deprivation. So you're going through something. You, you don't have what you feel like you need. You don't have, things aren't going your way, whatever. They're not going the way you wanted them to. Will you trust God and be obedient to him and have faith that God will come through and his will will be done? Will we take him at his word or not? Faith is not a blind leap into some unknown area. Faith is taking God at his word. The things that he's promised, that he's really promised. The things that he's promised, the things that he said. And taking him at his word and saying, you know what? I'm going to submit. I'm going to obey. No matter what. That's faith. And trust in God in times of deprivation. Number two part of faith is generosity. That I'm going to proactively keep myself from idolatry by giving, by being generous with my time, being generous with my skills, being generous, generous, yes, with my money. That's going to protect our hearts from that stuff getting a hold on it. If we hold it all with open hands, then we're not at danger at that point because we're holding it all with open hands and we're offering it all up to God and to others as, as have need. So generosity will help us with that. So that's faith. And then the second way we're proactively fight this is enjoyment. First Timothy 4, 4 says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. You can enjoy things in a non-idolatrous way God has given you good gifts. You can enjoy them. In fact, it is glorifying to God when you enjoy the good gifts that he gives. You can enjoy things in a non-idolatrous way where you focus only on the gift and not the giver. Okay? It becomes idolatrous when you start focusing only on the gift and not the giver of the gift. But the one of the chief delights of the Christian life, one of our main delights is learning to enjoy the gifts of God as an act of worship. You can enjoy your family as an act of worship. The problem comes when we supplant God in that way, when we put them in the place of God, and we start to enjoy the gift more than the giver. Training your heart to see enjoyment as worship is going to move through a progression that will help to shake your heart free from idolatry and teach you to enjoy God, which, by the way, is the reason you were created in the first place. To enjoy God and glorify him. I'm going to have the musicians come on to the front. Um, I just have a couple of, of questions I want to ask as we, as we move to the close. Based on, based on your answers to the questions that I asked earlier. Okay, I gave you those sort of seven diagnostic questions for you to think through. Based on what the answers in your heart were to those questions, what I want to ask you this morning is, do you need 
to walk through the reactive approach right now. In other words, have you seen idolatry in your life this morning? Has God pointed something out in your heart and you need to repent of it? Second question. Have we walked through this this morning and you said, okay, I don't think I've got idolatry right now. I've looked at these areas as we're asking those questions. Do you need to be proactive and exercise your faith and enjoyment of God as worship more? I dare say everyone in this room, myself included, falls into one of those categories. We either need to react to some idolatry that we see in our hearts or we need to do more proactively to keep from making idols. A famous theologian said, the human heart is a factory of idols. We just keep making more things to worship instead of worshiping the one who gives us the good gifts. Would you stand up with me? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a final closing song. I want to invite you, if you have never trusted in Christ, uh, that you can do that standing right where you're at. And you can trust the message of his death in your place for your sin, that he took on the wrath of God in your place. And you can trust, that, trust the good news of Jesus. Believe it and repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin and you can know him. And all these good things that we've talked about can be opened up to you when you get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And and I would love to talk to you more. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you more about that. We can chat after service. Maybe you're someone who, man, you just need to, you just need to repent. You need to just take this time instead of singing. Let the, maybe let the words of the song wash over you as you uh, seek the face of God and and, and repent and confess of, of the sin of idolatry in your heart. Whatever it is, um, this time is, is a time to respond to what God has said in his word. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Uh, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for your word. I bore it clear into our hearts and our souls. Help us to not serve false idols, but to root out every part, uh, anything that, that vies for our allegiance. Help us be faithful only to you, Jesus. May you be glorified as you um, turn our hearts to you. In Jesus' name I pray.